What is good, y'all? It is your boy, Jonathan Dumas. Back again, highly visible and a little misunderstood podcast. Last week, you had a chance to listen to my friend, Alanike Mensa, just continuing on our series with Entrepreneuring While BIPOC. We are still here in this series, and this time we're talking to my friend, Grace Young Foster, who has a company called The Inclusion Initiative, who supports, in all kinds of ways, alumni from the foster care system because she's an alumni from the foster care system. So it was really, really insightful, um, awesome conversation. Can't wait for y'all to check that out. But before we dive into that conversation, I just want to talk about the pod logistics real quick. So first things first, support the show. You can do that in multiple ways, but the first way is to support us financially. So that is by um, joining our support page on Patreon, which is there's three tiers, three, five, and 10. There is our coffee page, which is for a single donation. Shout out to all those folks who support financially. Truly, truly appreciate you. Second way to support us is by joining our email list. You'll be the first to know about all things highly visible and a little misunderstood, all the things that are coming in early next year. Can't wait to get these out to you. And as a little extra incentive, you'll get our inaugural stickers. And I don't know if I'm going to do these again, y'all. Like I legit might just do these for the people that join the email list. Those are the only way you're going to get those stickers. So you got to sign up for the email list. Link is in our show description. And then finally, you know, subscribe to the show leave us a review, rate us. We read those things. And also when you rate the show, you know, helps other folks find the show. So if you could do all those things, that would be amazing. Yeah, do those things. (laughs) Um, Before we get to the conversation, let's dive into the highly visible story of the week. All right, this week's highly visible story uh, is one that's slightly more hopeful hopefully, um, than the things that we've been seeing in recent news. And it's straight out of Detroit. Um, Haven't been, hope to go. Uh, The city is experiencing a significant decline in homicides, a trend that hasn't been seen in almost 60 years, which is, that's amazing. Um, I'm going to share more about that in a second. But the reason why I want to highlight this is because of a recent exchange that I heard from Senator John Kennedy and Dr. Megan Rainey from the Yale School of Public Health. Um, Check it out. Why do you think that Chicago has become America's largest outdoor shooting range? Do you think it's because of Chicago citizens who have no criminal record, but who have a, a awfully a gun in their home for protection or perhaps for hunting? Or do you think it's because of a finite group of criminals who have rap sheets as long as King Kong's arm? So Mississippi, Louisiana, and Missouri actually have higher firearm death rates. Um, Obviously, there's certain... What about Chicago? So I don't live in Chicago. It's not my primary area of research. You don't have an opinion on that? I think there's easy access to firearms combined with environmental conditions, uh, lack of great education. There have actually been studies showing that when you green vacant lots and repair abandoned buildings in urban neighborhoods... You see decreases in gunshots, in violence, as well as in stress and depression in the neighborhoods around them. No disrespect, Doc, but that sounds a lot like word salad to me. It's just so ridiculous. Uh, This is the type of rhetoric uh, that is often used by Republicans or folks that want to just kind of, you know, shift the spotlight or change it. You always hear mention of, oh, Chicago has wild, it's wild, wild west over there, Detroit or whatever. And, and folks will do this while ignoring the actual facts surrounding gun violence in states and cities where there are significantly more relaxed gun laws. Um, and in Kennedy's case, the one he even represents, um, and I'm not even going to get into the dog whistling that this gives off, right, when you talk about Chicago and Detroit, because these are predominantly black cities. And so it's so interesting, like the language, if you, I, I, I'm not going to dive into it, but the language that's specifically used um, when folks talk about gun violence, they always want to point there um, to distract from the actual thing um, that we're talking about. So let's get back to Detroit. So um, according to some recent data, as of November 30th, Detroit has witnessed an 18% reduction in homicides compared to the same period last year. Um, And multiple articles cite Detroit officials contributing this positive shift to a collaborative effort specifically the implementation of gun violence reduction partnership that was initiated in 2021. Now, the partnership involves city, county, and state law enforcement 
agencies, including Detroit Police Department, judges, Wayne County, prosecutor, Kim Worthy. Now, I'm going to pause really quickly here for my little script and just say um, that it's so interesting that they want to pat themselves on the back. Like multiple articles that I had read is just like official site this, right? While not mentioning um, the grassroots organizations and neighborhood organizations that they're doing. And I'm going to get into that in a second. I just, it's so interesting, you know, politics. Let's get back to it. So gun violence in particular, as far as like homicides, weren't the only thing that went down. So we saw a decrease in carjackings by about 36%. Non-fatal shootings went down by 13%. It's just, it, it's, it's, it's great all around. But as I mentioned, what didn't make the headlines in many of the articles uh, that I researched was the pivotal role that neighborhood and grassroots organizations play. We know, um, at least I hopefully you know this, that when you invest in mental health support, um, restorative practices, um, after school programs, all these different things, you will see a decrease in crime. And these are the organizations that are actually doing it, investing in those communities, you know, throwing barbecues, so on and so forth. It was actually like three out of four articles didn't mention at all the neighborhood grassroots organizations at all. Um, and none of them, none of them mentioned an initiative that was instituted this year that went into place this year in the city of Detroit called the Community Violence Initiative Contracts that were that selected six community and neighborhood organizations uh, in the city. And so these contracts uh, are part of a new Shot Stoppers program, and they involve six community-based organizations committed to community violence intervention. And initially, the city aimed at doing only three to five groups, but because of the strength of each of the proposals and the work that they're doing, right, they expanded it to six. And so um, this program was funded by the American Rescue Plan, which, you know, provides a quarterly budget, so on, yada, yada, yada. Um, but the selected groups, and I want to name them because they're doing incredible work, um, are the D Detroit People's Community, Detroit 300, New Era Community, Connection, Force Detroit, M Wayne Metropolitan Community Action Agency, Denby Neighborhood Alliance, and Camp, Camp Restore, and Detroit Friends and Family. They're all doing incredible work. These organizations have, you know, have decades of experience and will now receive the funding that they need to continue to do that work um, in their um, community violence intervention services. So I also wanted to mention somebody who, you know, I just look up to Jason Wilson, who is from Detroit. I don't know if he's from Detroit, but lives in Detroit and doing incredible work as well. It's called the Cave of Adullam um, Transformation Academy. Uh, there's actually a 30 for 30, 30, for 30 uh, documentary on it. Check it out. He's an incredible human being, uh, has multiple books out. But that academy, which is focused on healing boys, mending men, fortifying families, and cultivating communities worldwide. So just to wrap up, y'all, I just want to make sure that, you know, as we are thinking about, you know, this is fantastic news. But when you see a news headline and they're only talking about police officials, county jails, court systems, right? Um, there's really transformative organizations that are doing incredible, incredible, incredible work um, that are that are also doing incredible work to make communities safer because they live in those communities. So um, just keep that in mind. All right, y'all, that is it for the Highly Visible Story of the Week. Let us get into this conversation with Grace. So, Grace, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm super excited to have you. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much, Jonathan, for having me. I always enjoy conversations with you. I'm really excited about this. Yes, this is so good. Yeah, we, um, little context for everybody else. We met um, in Carissa Begonia's um business entrepreneurial cohort it's now ready um wait hold on leap to liberation but like i was in the ready to leap wait ready i was yes. in the ready to leap and you're in the ready to launch <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 no, no lie right. i always got i always got them confused i always switched them in my mind it's all good. um so um yeah uh so i'm really excited to like have you on talk about you know what you got going on um as we get into this uh dive deeper into this series so I would love for you to just introduce yourself, share who you are, maybe the work that you're doing. Um, yeah, let's start there. Absolutely. Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm Grace Young Foster. I am the founder and CEO of the Inclusion Initiative, nice. which is working to close the opportunity gap for transracial adoptees and foster care alumni in our professional spaces. 
I love it. I love it. I love it. So for you, um, all right. So, I, you know, I did a little peek in the bio and all that stuff. So you have like an extensive yeah. like background in nonprofit orgs and different things like that. Um, mm-hmm. Like what, what made you like launch into like doing your own thing, especially in given like this niche of the field? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll back up and, and share that entrepreneurship was like bottom of my list. (laughs) (laughs) I did not envision myself as an entrepreneur. Um, I did not think of myself as someone that was a movement builder Mm. or someone that could really um, have influence in this space, um, in the startup startup ecosystem and the tech ecosystem in the, you know, DEI ecosystem. So I always thought of myself as more of a a supporter Mm. and uh, more of a person uh, that would be a, uh, you know, a fit to elevate others. And it kind of plays into this whole mindset that we're going to talk about later as, you know, people of color and especially in certain sectors, right, where Mm -hmm. you're not the dominant (laughs) in that space and you don't really see others like you. Um, And so that really uh, does shape your perception, right, of what you're capable of, what you could aspire to be, Mm. and what you reach for. Um, Not even to mention, right, what we're supported in. So when we don't have others around us that reflect us, it's hard to see yourself in those positions of, leadership of influence of um, change making so um, I say all that because again entrepreneurship was the last thing (laughs) I thought I would do and I had um, you know started a a very non-traditional career um, because of my background as a transracial adoptee as someone who had experienced the foster care system Um, You know, I was placed into a home, a situation, a community uh, that didn't reflect me at all. Mm. And really, the overarching theme, right, was I was to assimilate and blend in there Mm. versus me as an individual with all I had to give was accepted, valued, and, um, you know, included in the spaces that I was in. So because of the mindset, right, I had to blend in, I had to fit in, uh, I had to be what others were telling me I should be, um, I never uh, strived, right, to be more than that. Mm. And so I kind of just took any job that I could get. And Mm. that started me out in the restaurant space, in the retail space. And um, from there, uh, I built a career in corporate America in in sales and business development and did that for a few years and then transitioned like many folks, you know, we all transition careers at one point in time Mm -hmm. and I decided to transition into the social impact space. So I Mm -hmm. went into the nonprofit sector. I left the Midwest. I moved to DC. I thought I was going to help change the world in the nonprofit space And, you know, my, obviously I had transferable skills, sales and business development. When you apply them to fundraising, it's pretty impactful and powerful. So, um, I, um, built my career here in the DC area in the nonprofit space, uh, fundraising for organizations for these mission driven organizations and, um, was quite successful, but not as successful as I thought I would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that all through a, a myriad of things and a lot of nuances that we'll talk about led me to entrepreneurship. I love that. Yeah. I have so many follow-up questions because it's so interesting. The, um, the overlap that I've, that I've felt just like not exploring my own racial identity more particularly, um, in my own like experience in like predominantly white spaces 
and like just like taking the jobs that I like I could get or you know oh like we think you'd be a good fit for that so you're always like trying to navigate that um not correlate not like making a direct link to <laughs> being a transracial adoptee or anything like that but it's just like the mm-hmm. just like the parallels that I'm seeing between that it's just like um yeah it it, it really just emphasizes the the I don't know I guess the influence or even like the losses that we could feel when we're not like our racial identity is not like fostered or cared for and encouraged or um yeah or even seen like really even even seen so um right no like that's that's really well so okay so you decided to start you decided to start the inclusion initiative um (laughs) tell us tell us tell us more about that because i know that the (laughs) impact uh the impact, the work is so, so necessary. So I had, I, I used to be a HR recruiter for a very short time. I'm at a nonprofit, mm. like foster care, um, uh, foster oh, care organization. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, wow. so I was recruiting like a lot of the, um, folks for the group homes that worked in the group homes. And then some of the, what were the other positions, caseworkers, different things like that, um, visitation, all of those things. So I'm somewhat familiar with it. I only did it for a, like, a, like about a year. Um, but yeah, but it was, yeah, very, very interesting. So yeah. Yeah. You got a glimpse inside that world and you really saw, I'm, I, I think (laughs) if I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you saw just some of the, um, inequities in the system Mm -hmm. and you saw some of the challenges, right. Of, especially in the recruiting part of it to, um, ensure that the kids that you're supporting were really getting the help that they needed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also just like the view of these white people thinking that they're, mm-hmm. they're doing, you know, God's work. But I'm like, you're mm-hmm. literally, <laughs> you literally like, you don't see, I don't know, you don't see them as kids. You see them as like your own like way of feeling white, white saviorism. Like you feel like so yes. good about yourself for, for the work that you're doing. And I'm like, you know, you think you're telling them what they need and you're like, you're not even talking to them about what they need. You're telling them that this is yeah. their home. It's like, no, I don't, I don't know. I always, it just made me feel a little icky sometimes. Cause I'm like, you don't even mm-hmm. know. <laughs> yeah. You don't even, yeah. You don't even know what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let, let's dive into that a little bit. Well, let's do it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it influences, right. Why I'm building the inc- inclusion initiative. Yes. So when I first joined the nonprofit sector, um, I had just a, um, a really re- unique perspective in some of the organizations that I work for because I had such a unique background mm. and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, all of my identities um, were reflecting, right, these lived experiences of the communities that we were serving. Mm. However... Many um, organizations that do really excellent, they do, they do excellent work in the space, Mm -hmm. but there's very few that have leaders running these organizations that actually have lived experience Mm -hmm. of the communities that they're serving. makes a huge difference. And it further, you know, can marginalize those communities mm. when you have, for example, <laughs> white people, right, who are not people of color, who are telling youth of color in a foster care system what they should have, what, sh- what they should think, what should they do when they don't actually have those lived experiences as mm. foster youth of color living through the system in real time. Yeah. And... You know, it's not a problem we can fix tomorrow, but as I was uh, working for these organizations and climbing, you know, that nonprofit corporate ladder and raising money and under really understanding how philanthropy was influencing all of this, mm. how people with money were white (laughs) and then dictating the terms right of what Mm. these communities received and how they got support and how the organizations were run etc 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 it's just this big systematic structural Mm. issue that um nonprofits have been based on for 
decades, decades, and decades. Mm -hmm. And so um, the more that I was really seeing these systems for what they were, Mm -hmm. and I'm only going to speak for myself, right? Because there are people in the space that don't feel this way. They have the right to their own opinions. But in my experience, as someone that was trying to raise money to support really marginalized communities, it, it like you said, there was an ick factor and it mm. was really bugging me. <clears throat> and on top of it of all, myself as a person of color, very talented, very skilled, uh, very impactful in the organizations that I work for. Um, but right, I had this non-traditional background where I didn't, because of my um, history and background as a transracial adoptee and someone that had been in the foster care system. And then of course, as a person, right, that, um, you know, there are adoptees that have fantastic, super amazing experiences. There are some that have polar opposite. Mm -hmm. There are some that have middle ground experiences. Well, for me personally, you know, I, uh, didn't get to uh, retain and carry on family support and Mm. family connection. So, you know, my adoption experience um, just led me to um, a place in my life where I became very isolated and siloed and didn't have that family support that, you know, a lot of people just take for granted, Mm, (laughs) right? People that are born into their families and they have their mom and dads and siblings and uncles and aunts and grandparents and first and second, third, fourth, fifth cousins, on and on it goes, right? Mm. When you think about the extensive network that gives you from the very beginning of your life, it's kind of amazing. And I I like to call this, you know, your legacy network. This is your legacy network. Mm And as you grow and start pursuing school and job opportunities, right, this legacy network is really the first place where a lot of people get their opportunities. Mm -hmm. They get to understand what it means to be in the workforce. They understand what white collar jobs are versus blue collar. They understand what internships are, all of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any of that. Yeah, I'm working at, you know, I'm working at McDonald's and like Abercrombie and Fitch, Yeah, (laughs) like just trying to just trying to put food on the table for myself and figure out how I'm going to pay rent and all of that. So, you know, all that to say, I didn't get to start with this great legacy network where I got these opportunities upon opportunities upon opportunities because you know my dad knows somebody at X company that can give me an internship or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And so my resume looked weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it looked weird. Yeah. And it was not traditional. And so when you come into a sector like the nonprofit sector that really is built on legacy networks, mm. people that are in positions of power, um, I should say many people that are in positions of power in the nonprofit sector, not all, of course, um, a lot of it has to do with the connections that you have, the mm. network that you have. And because I'm, you know, I was essentially a no one coming into the space, but really uh, aspiring and trying, right, to um, gain these leadership positions because I was qualified. Mm -hmm. I was absolutely qualified and I had the skill and talent and the drive, all of that. But no matter how hard I worked, no matter how much I worked, no matter the goals and metrics that I smashed, you know, out of the park, Mm -hmm. it never was quite enough, right? I could never quite break these ceilings Mm. that are there for people of color, for Asian women, for women, (laughs) the list goes on. Yeah. And it took me a while to realize that there are a few things going on, right? Mm -hmm. There is me as a person of color experiencing the things that a lot of people of color go through. Mm. There's me as a transracial adoptee and foster care alumni who had really a broken experience where I don't have 
right? That legacy network that helped me <clears throat> in my young adulthood, in my career journey. Yeah, yeah. There is also the fact that because I'm a transracial adoptee and I was put into a white community, you know, home with white parents, um, I had rejected my race and my ethnicity for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I rejected that. In, I internalized that racism towards mm -hmm. myself, especially. Yeah. But then anything that would associate me with being Asian. Mm. And that filtered into all aspects of my life. It filtered mm. into the friends that I chose. It filtered into the jobs and communities that I chose to live in and work in. Mm. And even it filtered into me preventing myself from building relationships, professional, mm. personal, otherwise, with people who were Asian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And I am so ashamed that it took me so long to get past all of that. But I also recognize, right, it's not my fault. It is a system, a culture of all the things that I was placed in and went through mm -hmm. that I didn't choose, right? Because when you're an adoptee and you're a foster care alum, you don't choose these things. Yeah, yeah. But it was those years and years of being told these narratives of, you know, your value lies if you behave in the dominant culture way, mm. which is white culture for me. Yeah. And in order to succeed, right, you have to mimic and assimilate to this white culture that's uh, the, the dominant culture in your space. Mm. So, you know, for me, all of these things added up to finally – I have a point. I, I, I Please, promise yeah, no. I'm getting there. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in 2020, right, our mm. country felt the weight of everything, just everything happening. Mm. I don't have to explain it to the audience. No, they know. But I want to call out specifically, right, the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and all the others that we don't list, mm. like, right, the murders of black people that were finally being uh, nationally talked about, not just once, but like an ongoing conversation, right? Mm -hmm. That really um, helped our country just stop and listen and try and learn and try and change behaviors and try and change the narrative and mm -hmm. try to really recognize that Black people really matter in our country and they're suffering and they're being killed. <laughs> This, yeah. And this is a systemic issue across all different minority groups in our country that we are not valued here, right? Mm -hmm. And for me in this moment in time, it made me really reflect on my own internal racism that I had towards myself and mm -hmm. towards other Asian people. And it helped me really change, right, how my behaviors, my thought patterns, my mindset about how I valued myself, how I valued my community, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But all the while, Jonathan, like I was searching, right, because I knew I was a part of this conversation. Mm -hmm. I knew that as an Asian person, as someone that had experienced what I did, in the foster care system, in the adoption system, like I knew that I had a perspective that was important. Mm. And I was searching and searching, right, for all these conversations. I was searching for rooms to talk about this in. And time and time again, right, I didn't belong. Mm. And my story was not really understood. And I was not being um, included in these conversations, especially around belonging. Mm. And for a couple of years, almost three years, I was searching for this space, especially in the professional spaces, mm -hmm. because I knew that I was having frustrations and challenges over climbing the corporate ladder. And to the point, Jonathan, where I went and got an MBA from a top business school. I went to NYU. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Still can't believe that I got in, by the way. But it's a, an incredible program. Mm. And even after that, right, things were not really changing for me. Mm. I'm like, 
hello, I'm doing everything right. I'm ticking all these boxes. Yeah. What is wrong? And mm-hmm. I realized it's not with me. Mm-hmm. I was not the problem. The systems were the problem, right? Yeah. But I couldn't find these professional spaces where I could use my voice, where my story was um, heard and really welcomed, right? Um, where I could see people that shared my lived experiences. And for me, it came to um, just a point in my career where I realized, right, if I'm not finding the space and I need it and I have all of these lived experiences to point towards, right, to why I need it and why this is important and why mm-hmm. we're, we need to be included in these conversations, well, guess what? There are millions of adoptees and foster care alumni in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. I guarantee you, I'm not the only one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if I'm not finding these spaces, that means they're not finding these spaces. Mm. That is unacceptable. Yeah. And I have been searching for several years now, and the fact that I can't find them signals to me that there is a real market need for this, even if it's a small niche market need. Yeah. This is a need because I need it. Yeah. And who is going to build it? I've been waiting. And I realized after my work with our cohort, with Carissa, I'm like, well, <laughs> if I don't build it, it probably won't be built, right? Yeah, yeah. And then I launched my entrepreneurship journey to build the inclusion initiative. So Amazing. I promised you I'd get to the point. Yeah, no, 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 that's that's great. I mean, it's a <laughs> podcast, so like the, the scenic route is always the better way to go. Uh, <laughs> um, so like, yeah, you said a good amount of things there that like um, just got my mind spinning. But I think I think the, the thing that like draws, draws my attention there is like the searching part, right? Where like in 2020, a lot of folks... Um, I I'll put myself in there, even though I I started like my 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 uh, negrescence. It's called negrescence, where you like grow mm-hmm. into your blackness or whatever. But um, I think I started before then. But I think 2020 was just like such an isolated time. 2020, 2021, even up until this year, where like there is nothing else you can do but to think and see and process and ponder, and um even for you where like probably those questions were already bubbling up because you're experiencing all these things leading up to this time but particularly in 2020 where you're like the fuck (laughs) you're just like what's going on (laughs) yeah um and it's uh and so um it's just like that searching piece right where it's like uh and realizing the level of like for me anti-blackness that i like had internalized and for you probably anti-asianness that you internalize it's just it's really really wild and um, even the parallels that I'm seeing in my own like career journey, entrepreneurial journey is like the people that I tried to impress the, the door, the rooms that I tried to get into were like these people that were never going to accept me anyways. And I'm like exerting so much energy to like connect, to show, to prove, um, myself, my business, my concepts, my ideas, whatever, um, to people that were literally never going to accept me in the first place. And so like, until like I woke up and was like, yo, you know, I got to like realize like what's going on internally within me and like deal with this. Um, and like the community that has always accepted me, that always loved me, even though like I was trying to figure out there was some people that you just don't connect with. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, whatever. I've been called, you know, Oreo or whatever. There's a lot of people that can like relate to that, which is yeah. there's some there's layers to that, whatever. But um yeah. but like when I found my folks like online, when I found the people that like I connect with, well black folks, that black community that like love me, care for me, and like embraced me like wholly, like it truly, truly is a game changer. And you recognize like the thing that you're building, the thing that you're designing, the creating that you're putting out into the world, that even it's not I don't even consider your yours a small niche, right? Like I, I think that it's a, a niche that is so, so needed. Um, but what you're creating, the thing that you're creating, it's just like, it's needed. And so like, it's so interesting how I've been meeting lots more entrepreneurs of color, black, Asian folks, you know, um, 
that like their identities and their stories show up so in many different ways um, in the work and the things that they're building and creating and like the reasoning behind why it's just like beautiful to me. I'm like, like, I feel like this just feels natural. It feels real. It feels um, to some extent grounded in the why and the why it's important. And, yeah. and I think to some extent that is also why it will be so impactful. Right. Um, and even to something that you said earlier, it's like you have white folks or even like I've seen some black and <laughs> black and brown folks, Asian folks in these positions where like they're just doing a different iteration of whiteness in those positions. And like they're still exhibiting the same amounts of harm and to some extent even greater um, because they're like perpetuating these kind of ideas of like what it is to be X, Y and Z or how to how to mm-hmm. be in the world. And it's just whiteness. Right. Um, yeah. And it's just like so harmful, so damaging. And, you know, I'm not going, I'm going to call myself to the carpet here too. Cause like I used to do that. Like that was me. That was like, yo, why are you acting that way? You need to like do this, 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 and this. And not realizing like the level of harm that I was causing, but like even level of privilege and opportunity that I had that allowed me to get in those rooms, like mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z. So it's just so, yeah. it's so interesting. And like, I, I feel that uh, in your story. I'm curious, um, like all that say, I'm, I'm curious for you, like when you're, when you were crafting even the inclusion, um, uh, your business, name the business one more time, inclusion initiative. The inclusion initiative. Yeah. Okay. I almost said something else. All right. So <laughs> when you're crafting the inclusion initiative, like when you're just sitting, you know, in your room or a whiteboard or whatever you're doing, like what were the things that like you absolutely knew that needed to be like at the center of the inclusion initiative number one lived experience Mm. lived experience is so um like we talked about right it's often not included when things are being built for different groups of people Mm -hmm. and it's shifting now like you know we're seeing more and more things that are being built or have been built that are now um recognizing how important lived experience is and having those voices at the table Mm -hmm. um, before, during, and after it's built, right? Yeah. But for me, uh, because that was so missing in the professional spaces, and, you know, I'll back up a little bit, right? When we walk into the workplace, very clear, our faces just show Mm -hmm. one identity or two identities, Yeah. whether we're male presenting, female presenting, what race we are. So those are like on our faces. What's not clear, right, are the nuances of other identities that we hold. Mm -hmm. So for LGBTQIA, if uh, in my, from in my example, right, I'm a transracial adoptee. Mm -hmm. I'm also a foster care alumni. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You wouldn't know that unless I told you. Yeah. And many of us in the workplace never talk about it because it's deep. Yeah. And it's often something that we don't want to be defined by because mm-hmm. of the narratives in society about, right? When you think about foster youth, what are you thinking? You're thinking like troubled kids, um, kids that, you know, are in the lowest of lows. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have like positive associations with foster youth. That's because of the the rhetoric and narratives of society. And transracial adoptee, um, I'll define that for the audience because I'm sure a lot of people don't know exactly what that means. But it means um, when a person of one race is brought in and adopted by a family that does not reflect their race. Mm. In the U.S., typically it's showing up as Um, people of color being adopted by white parents, but it can be black parents adopting an Asian person. Mm -hmm. It can be, you know, Asian people adopting a white person. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the definition, but it's predominantly here in the U S white parents adopting kids of color. And I'm also like a transnational adoptee. So intercountry. So I was Mm -hmm. um, brought from Korea into the U S 
Hmm. So my cultural identity, right, was completely <laughs> taken from me as well. Hmm. Um, but yeah, we don't talk about these things because it's not adoption, transracial adoption, foster care. Like these are not like just normal toxic topics of conversation you just have with your your friends and all of that. And depending on what your lived experience is, right, it can be extremely painful to talk about and mm -hmm. very triggering. But in the workplace, right, all of these lived experiences do impact like how we show up as professionals and how we deal with things as professionals. Things like toxic, toxic bosses or feedback or time dead or like tight deadlines on mm -hmm. projects like those can be triggering um, even friendships in the workplace, like all of that kind of stuff mm. shows up in um, how we respond as transracial adoptees or foster care alumni, but we never are able to talk about it and show it. And so it was really important for me when building the inclusion initiative that this be a intentional network and resource hub for our community with these lived experiences because it doesn't exist. Um, and then also, I wanted it to be a place where um, we can literally close the opportunity gap. Mm. And I talk about the opportunity gap. I explained it a little bit, but right, we don't, a lot of us don't have these legacy networks that we get to just build our yeah. careers on or launch our careers from. Yeah. So we're building everything from scratch. And we may choose to tell parts of our story. We may not. That can hurt us or that can help us, it depends, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're piecemealing all of these things together, this network, these resources, we're piecemealing our careers together. And, you know, in my personal experience, as I was climbing the ranks and getting manager roles and director roles and leadership roles, I had peers that were like five years younger than me. Mm. Uh, I had some peers that were like 10 years younger than me. Mm. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> like, I guarantee you, I've like really, really had to do a lot to get here. Like, I'm not saying they didn't. Right. Yeah. But then you layer in the things about not having family, not having network, not having community, not having financial resources, like from the age of 17, like all of these things. Uh, it just there's a lot more mountains that I had to climb than yep, some yep. others do yeah to the point right where i had to get go get an mba to get the same position someone 10 years younger than me got without one yeah <laughs> so yeah, yeah just those examples and i'm like again i um am talented i'm skilled i've had resources i have experience all of this kind of stuff and i now have a, a network that i have built mm -hmm. and if i'm still struggling like this can you imagine the people that that don't have the privileges that I have? Yeah, yeah. The people who are Black American, right? They're going to have some challenges that I don't have to go through as an Asian American. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, there is clearly this opportunity gap professionally that's also preventing our wealth building, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's just perpetuating these systems of inequity over and over again. And so in building the inclusion initiative, it was very important for me to have specific resources that's going to help us close this opportunity gap for transracial adoptees and foster care alumni for the things that we go through and experience in the workplace. Mm. So those I, are kind of the top three. I love that. I love that too. Um, and that's like something that I've heard like repeatedly. And I think even in our program with Carissa, she was pretty explicit about like, like you're entrepreneurs, you're the first, you're the only, um, uh, the other, I think that's her three, the three, the three O's she'd mm -hmm. be using. Um, and I, 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 lo I even love that saying that she uses because it, it's very, very true. And I think sometimes, uh, I'll just speak for my own self. Like even when I, I'm going to use the podcast, for example, uh, mm -hmm. that like it started out as like this kind of like journal journalistic thing of our open diary thing where like I just wanted to have conversations with the people that were closest to me. 
um, and talk about things that like I think about, but never really like have a conversation about. And even just like that, like that's the the stories that came out about that that just yeah really inspired me to like dig deeper in what it means. And then all of a sudden, like I'm using my story and like the things that I've navigated and worked through. And then all of a sudden, like people are resonating with that, and I'm like, oh shoot, like this is hitting home for some folks, right? Of like, um, you know, having a, uh, like even parts of my story, it's like, I don't know. I, I sometimes I, I kind of use my suffering as a badge of honor and then that kind of got me some mm. level of access, which I feel, what the hell? <laughs> but, um, mm. but the, um, but the, but like being, uh, mom had me at 15 and like, uh, mm. and being the first to go to school, first to go to college, like being like, exceptional in, in a lot of different ways um but also like talking to my mom about like those things like what was it like for you to raise you know three kids by the time you were you know 23 24 you know what i'm yeah. saying and and then exploring that and then having people tell me oh shoot like this i no, i uh, that's my story too or like there's some connection to that and so i think there i think that when there's a groundedness to our like being the first um the other the only like there is like a and like even an ownership of my, our stories and like what we want to share how we share how we show up or even like that even being our center why even if it's not explicitly shared out because uh, mm-hmm. for me i just really wanted to explore like these conversations and being able to like talk to talk about things in a nuanced way and like be curious like ultimately just be like curious um and like how that's resonated and build something around curiosity, around, um, yeah, around figuring out how to like do life and the world a little bit better by understanding and learning about people more. Like that's my why. And it started with like, (laughs) like those kind of conversations, but it's just so, uh, it's just so interesting. Like that, a lot of the entrepreneurs of color, like that I talk to that are like, that's the, that's their story. Like it's really, really influenced by like who they are, um, and kind of like the things that they've experienced throughout their life. Um, so I, okay, for, for me, like values are really important. Like we talked mm-hmm. about, like, what are the things that you really wanted at the core and center, right? Um, and I think my values are, my personal values, my business values are like joy, authenticity, community, and equity. Like those are my ish. I call it Jace, J, Jace. Uh, so um, for you, what, what are some of your values that you like? that kind of keep you aligned, that kind of keep you grounded? Like what are the, what are those values that you have for your, for your business, maybe individually? What do you, what are yours? Yeah, definitely at the top is equity. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's the whole purpose of, you know, my business is top line is equity for our mm. communities, but that, you know, I want it to, uh, have you know it had many many of our businesses of the organizations that are working in this space right we all want equity for our communities mm. and the more that people like you and i and you know our friends who are entrepreneurs and you know the organizations that are doing good work in this space the more that we do it together mm-hmm. and and talk about this and message this together the more it will become reality for our future generations. And, you know, I have a little, little, little daughter. She's almost two. So cute and so stubborn. But (laughs) when I I see her future, right, and when I look at my future, I try and imagine what I would have wanted for 20-year-old Grace. Mm -hmm. And I think about her. I'm like, well, the future we're building right now, like the work we're doing right now, that's going to be her future when she's 20. Mm-hmm. And that was, for me, the future I was seeing was not okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was not okay. And I want her to have equity as an Asian American person. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's one. Integrity is huge, Right. And I would also say, um, you know, my organization is called the Inclusion Initiative because I want us to all include each other in these conversations. A lot of people, um, they ask me, like, why 
are you doing it for foster care alumni? Like, why not just adoptees? You're adopted, you know, like, mm. they don't always, like, put two and two together. <clears throat> I have lived experiences both. But mm. the real reason I'm doing both communities that seem separate is mm. because they go through very similar experiences. Mm. But foster youth, especially foster youth of color, are way less likely to be adopted, to have mm. a permanent home. Mm. And so, you know, they're ripped away from everything they've known at maybe their babies, maybe they're older. A lot of them tend to be older. And I don't have to explain a lot of this to you, right? Because you worked in the system for a little bit. You know this. Yeah. But they are taken from their families, their communities, their cultures as well, and placed into homes where they just don't ever belong and they're never accepted. Mm -hmm. And as a transracial adoptee, like, you know, that's really what I felt. And I had, um, I actually had a lot of siblings, both adopted and fostered. We're, there, there were nearly 20 of us mm. <laughs> of all different races and backgrounds. And so I saw firsthand the foster care system and the adoption mm. system and the parallels and the similarities and just how awful um, things can really be in both systems, how good things can also be in both systems. But we share parallel storylines. And a lot of us, um, I think, can get really siloed, right, in the main identity that we think about every day. Mm. And we forget that we're more connected than we think we are, right? So yeah. we as people of color, we're super connected. Even though yeah. you are Black, I am Asian, we're still really connected in mm. some of our shared experiences because the underlying themes and issues are really similar, right? Mm -hmm. White supremacy, uh, oppression, <laughs> all of these things. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it's like with the inclusion initiative, like that inclusion is so important to me that we remember mm -hmm. that we are all a part of this change and we all have a place to be included because we share more than we think. We're less mm -hmm. different than we think. Um, and for me, these two particular communities just, you know, didn't have a voice yet. <laughs> so yeah. I really wanted to include them in this initiative exclusively. But, you know, it's to ultimately to foster that that sense of belonging that everyone oh. deserves. Mm, and so those are like really key values for me. Yeah. I, and what's interesting is when I first heard you put this out here, like I was like, I've never heard anything like this before. And like I, anything and everything I can do to support it is just like it's. I want to because it's so needed um, because it's it's a I, I, I don't I don't know if like folks know the statistics for like foster youth and like adoption and all these different things uh, in the US like it's it's kind of it's not kind of it is sad um, that like and you couple that with this idea of like even reproductive rights how like literally mm -hmm. there are states trying to force people to have force um uh, people to have kids um, or give birth, but our foster care system, the U.S. foster care system, adoption system is not like equipped. It's, it's not, not equipped. equipped at all. Um, mm -mm. And to, 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 yeah, like the 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 adoption statistics are abysmal. The um, resources for mm -hmm. adoption system is abysmal. Foster care system is abysmal. And then even to your to the work that you're even doing, the opportunities. Um, the experiences, everything that they need, the resources, support post um, that because oftentimes black and brown youth age out of the foster care system. Um, yep. And then they're just literally left to fend for themselves. And you're like, all right, good luck. <laughs> it's just, um, and so, yeah. They're given a plastic bag. They put in their belongings and it's like, good luck. See ya. That's Bye. just, and yeah. Yeah. There's no job resources. There's no, there's, literally nothing and so like we were talking about before they're taking any job they can get they're doing yeah. whatever they can just to survive yeah and it's unacceptable absolutely unacceptable um and so yeah so this y'all i'm not gonna dive into we're not gonna dive into stats look up the stats like legitimately like 
look up employment stats, look up like um, education stats, look up like even when um, when foster care youth go into like um, school, all these different things, you will you will be utterly shocked. Um, and it'll probably change. Yeah. Anyways, I'm not going to get to that. That's mm-hmm. another surprise. But it's just like it's 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 um, it's wild. So um, truly, truly, thank you for the work that you're doing, uh, Grace. It's incredible. Um, I would love to ask you one final question before we wrap up. What are you excited to share with the world? Like, what is the um, inclusion initiative like building, creating that you're really excited to um, put out into the world now that's already in the world soon, whatever? Yeah, I mean, the inclusion initiative exists, but it's not yet fully launched. So I'm really excited for the platform launch. And I'm excited to invite, you know, people with these lived experiences to join this professional community that's just for us, like built by us, (laughs) right? And it's going to have job resources, professional development resources, mentorship, a mentorship program. Um, It's going to have um, skill building opportunities, all of these things on top of just being a place where you can be your complete, whole, true, full self surrounded by others that just, they, they understand. And I know what you're talking, I know you know what I'm talking about, Jonathan, when I say when you are sitting at a table with a group of friends and you don't have to explain any nuances of who you are because they mm-hmm. already know because they yeah. are that too. They get yeah. it. Yes. And that is just such a tremendous feeling that we don't get a lot, especially in the workplace, if ever. And so this community is going to be an already existing network for you of professionals like that, that want to elevate you, support you, and um, just be in community with you and help you, right? Mm. Because we're all looking for these resources in all these scattered places, but this is really one place where you can get all of these things that I was looking for. And I could find one-off mentorship programs. I could find one-off maybe, you know, professional development opportunity for someone like me. But I, it took a lot of work and a lot of digging and a lot of piecemealing. And this is just making it accessible, efficient, easy, and really um, a place where you can have like long-lasting community. So it's being launched by the end of this year, and I'm really excited for everyone yeah, yeah. to see it. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And that's the inclusioninitiative.com, correct? It is, yes, the inclusioninitiative.com. Okay. Cool. Yes. And if that this is your identity, if you line up with that, um, you can uh, sign up and join that waitlist so you can join and get those uh, dope resources. Also, um, if they want to support the work you're doing, are there anything, any ways that they can do that? What's the best way to do that? Follow you? How do they give you money? All the things. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, oh, yeah. I like this part of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely follow me on LinkedIn. Um, okay. If you're really curious about um, some of the nuances, the storytelling, uh, you know, the, the deep issues that the inclusion initiative was born out of, follow me on LinkedIn because okay. I do a lot of storytelling there. But also, I'm looking for um, folks who have these identities that are in the same position that I am, right? You are able to give back to our community because of the resources or network you now have. Mm. So I'm looking for professional coaches, even, uh, you know, therapists. I'm looking for people that can help with skill building or that work in companies that want to hire our community and like specifically um, provide resources and opportunity for our community. So if you want to partner with the inclusion initiative in that way, please be in touch. And LinkedIn or the inclusioninitiative.com is the best way to get a hold of me. And also I am wanting to just put one final plea out there for people with our lived experience to join this community and support of each other because the more that we come together 
the more power we're able to provide for each other. And that's huge. That's huge in closing the opportunity gap. So especially if you're somebody that has resources or you need resources, you know, we need all of you to join the platform so that we can really build this ecosystem. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much again, Grace. All of those, like your LinkedIn bio, website, those things are going to be in the show notes, y'all. So just keep a lookout for that. Grace, thanks again for sharing your story so openly, so vulnerably. Um, yeah, this is dope. Really appreciate you. Yeah. Appreciate you, Jonathan. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, y'all. Till next time. Peace.